Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hi, and welcome back to week one, article two. Today is the functional anatomy of the pelvic floor and lower urinary tract, written by John Way and John Delancey, who are both physicians. What I love about this article primarily, um, one, it's a, an amazing article, but two, the photos and some of the um, images and figures that they have in here on the functional anatomy of the viscera and the fascia is super important to just get that 3D understanding of. So if you, for any reason, were not planning on reading this, I would totally have you at least look at the photos. Um, So let's get into it a little bit. So the article first starts out by saying that in contrast to classic anatomy, that this is going to address the functional anatomy of the pelvic floor in women, specifically focusing on how the pelvic organs are supported by the surrounding muscle and fascia, as well as how the pelvic visceral function relates to the clinical conditions of urinary incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse. So this article goes on to discuss how in the past, gynecologists and urologists relied on terms like cystocele, urethrocele, rectocele or anterocele to refer to the bulging or protrusion of the vagina below the pelvic floor that involves the bladder, urethra, rectum, or small bowel respectively. I think it's fair to say that most pelvic floor therapists have also been instructed in the same manner of different identifications of prolapse. The authors go on to discuss how the terms imply the assumptions concerning which organs can cause that vaginal bulge. However, an accurate diagnosis is possible only by imaging or surgical dissection, so those terms may be inappropriate. So they went on to discuss how a recent NIH, which is the National Institute of Health, had a terminology workshop for researchers in female pelvic floor disorders. And they wanted to define the terms to make it a little bit more uniform for dialogue among clinicians. So instead of based on the types of tissues that are coming down, they described it by three categories, uterine or apical, anterior or posterior prolapse. So let's talk about the support of the pelvic organs. This article goes from the peritoneum all the way to the vulvar skin. So the pelvic floor consists of several components lying between those layers of the peritoneum and the vulvar skin. From above and going downwards, there's the peritoneum, the pelvic viscera, and the endopelvic fascia the levator ani muscles, the perineal membrane, the superficial genital muscles. The support for all these structures comes from the connection to the bony pelvis and the attached muscles. The viscera are often thought of as being supported by the pelvic floor, but they're actually a part of it. The viscera play an important role in forming the pelvic floor through their connections with structures such as the cardinal and the uterosacral ligaments. Okay, here is where all those figures and photos that I love so much come in. So they go on to talk about how in 1934, a researcher named Bonnie pointed out that the vaginal canal is the same relationship to the abdominal cavity as a turned in finger of a surgical glove is to the rest of the glove. So if the pressure in the glove is increased, it will force that turned in finger to protrude downward, kind of like in the same way that if there's an increase in abdominal pressure force, the vagina will prolapse. 
obviously not to the same degree. I think we're a little bit more durable than a surgical glove, but for all intents and purposes, you get that. They go on to talk about how vaginal support is a combination of constriction, suspension, and structural geometry. So because of the way that the supportive tissues attach to the pelvic organs and to the pelvic walls, the female pelvic can naturally be divided into those different compartments, like the anterior and the posterior compartments. So of course, when you think bottom of the pelvis, you're gonna think those levator ani muscles. So those are gonna form the bottom of the pelvis where the organs are attached to at the levator ani muscles. And when they pass through the urogenital hiatus and are supported by those connections. So then on each side of the pelvis, that's going to be where that endopelvic fascia attaches the cervix and the vagina to the pelvic wall. The fascia forms a a really thick, continuous sheet-like hammock almost. And I'm so much of a visual person, so I'm going to describe these as best as I can. Um, There's two different pieces of the endopelvic fascia. There's the parametrium and there's the pericolpium. So the part of the fascia that attaches to the uterus is called the parametrium. And then the part that attaches to the vagina is the pericolpium. So the vagina is attached laterally to the pelvic walls, forming a single divider like in the middle of the pelvis that determines the nature of that prolapse. So you can imagine that the anterior and the posterior prolapse are gonna occur from the front or the back. There's not gonna be a lateral So this article goes on to discuss the division of the prolapse is going to reflect the nature of the lateral connections. So there's only really going to be those three types that they discussed before of movement that can cause a prolapse. The first one is going to be that the cervix or the vaginal apex is going to move downward between the anterior and the posterior support. The second one is going to be that the anterior vagina can protrude through the introitus. And the third one is going to be that the posterior wall can protrude through the introitus. So anterior, posterior, or apical. I know a lot of pelvic health classes go over the Delancey levels of support. Um, Sometimes it's like in level one and you're just taking in all the other information so you forget about it. So I'm going to go over the three levels of the Delancey support. Level one being suspension. So level one is the pericolpium. That's the tissues that suspend the vagina from the lateral pelvic walls. And the fibers of level one extend both vertically, but also posteriorly towards that sacrum. In level two, that's the attachment level. So level two, that's where the vagina is attached to the arc tendinous fascia pelvis and the superior fascia of the levator ani. So damage to the level one support can result in uterine or vaginal prolapse. So the nature of uterine support can be understood when the cervix is actually pulled downwards. And you can see that the parametria and the pericolpia actually become tight and arrest further cervical descent. But damage to the upper suspensory fibers of the pericolpium allows uterine or vaginal volt prolapse. So damage to the level two or the level three portions of vaginal support will actually instead result in anterior and posterior prolapse. The position and the mobility of the anterior vagina, bladder, and urethra are important to urinary continence as well as to anterior prolapse. So by fluoroscopy, the urethra and the vesicle neck are normally mobile structures while the distal urethra remains really fixed in its location. So both pelvic muscles and pelvic fascia determine the support of the urethra. So any disruption of those support systems can result in a downward descent of the anterior vaginal wall. 
The anterior vaginal support depends on the connections of the vagina and the periurethral tissues to the muscles and the fascia of the pelvic wall. It does not depend on the attachments of the urethra itself to the adjacent structures. So the layer of the tissue that provides the urethral support has two lateral attachments. Those are going to be the fascial attachments and the muscular attachments. The fascial attachment of the urethra is going to support the periurethral tissues and the anterior vaginal wall to the ATFP, which is that arcus tendinous fascia pelvis, and it has been called the paravaginal fascial attachments. The lateral detachment of the paravaginal fascial connections from the pelvic wall is associated with stress incontinence and anterior prolapse. So then that muscular attachment that connects to the periurethral tissues to the medial border of the levator ani muscle. Those attachments are going to allow the levator ani muscle's normal resting tone to maintain the position of the vesicle neck, supported by the fascial attachments. When the muscle relaxes at the onset of urination, it's going to allow that vesicle neck to rotate downward to limit the elasticity of the fascial attachments. Contraction at the end of urination is going to bring that vesicle neck back to its normal position. So anterior prolapse can occur from two anatomic perturbations, and the authors found it really important to focus on the fascial failures versus only the degree or the grading systems that we typically use regarding prolapse. The two anterior prolapses are defined in the article as, number one, the lateral detachment of the anterior vaginal wall at the pelvic sidewall, which is going to result in more of a displacement cystocele and two, the central failure of the vaginal wall itself, which is gonna result in more of a distension cystocele. So you can imagine that that lateral detachment is gonna have that displacement to the side, and that central failure is gonna result in that distended down, right? So touching base on some other anterior structures there, the tissue and the structural support surrounding the urethra is the most important piece in managing stress urinary incontinence. It's not necessarily that patient's anatomic urethral height being high or low. So the relative elasticity of the support surrounding the urethra is more important than the absolute position of the urethra that's going to result in stress incontinence. With a firm supportive layer, the urethra is going to be compressed between the abdominal pressure and the pelvic fascia, much in the same way that you can kind of compare to water flowing through a garden hose. Um, so let's compare it to the garden hose. So if a garden hose is running and you stepped on the hose on top of a hard cement surface, you're going to be able to stop that flow of water, right? If there's that firm support behind it. But if you use that same pressure of compression and that hose is on more of a soft surface, like really wet soil, it's not going to compress that water as much, um, did I mention that I love this article? They have such good explanations for people who are more visual. So I, I actually use that a lot with my patients. But the latter situation is gonna be really hard to oppose the force for closure to occur. So the occlusive action is gonna be significantly diminished. All right, so then let's talk about the posterior support. The posterior vagina is supported by the connections between the vagina, the bony pelvis, and the levator ani muscles. The lower one-third of the vagina is fused with the perineal body, which joins the perineal membranes on either side. That connection prevents the downward descent of the rectum in that region. So if the fibers that connect one side with the other rupture, the bowel may protrude downward, resulting in posterior vaginal prolapse. 
An important factor in stress incontinence is the levator ani muscle, and especially its attachment to the perineal body. So using MRI, there's known to be about 20% of women who have a visible defect in the muscle even prior to giving birth. They noted that these defects were also more commonly found in women who have stress incontinence. So clinically, it's important for us to realize that there may be some defects in our patients that may not be surgically correctable. Not only is this found in MRI evidence, but it's also found in histologic evidence. As we know as PTs, regardless of where the connective tissue is, be it in the knee, the shoulder, or the pelvic region, subjecting tissue to constant force will create stretching. Think skin expanders during plastic surgeries, or even athletes who are able to elongate their tissues with 10 minutes of flexibility training. Given its malleable nature, you can imagine how pelvic ligaments and structures can elongate by a great force of abdominal pressure too. Luckily, the constant tonic activity of the pelvic muscles will combat this. So we know that the urogenital hiatus is the opening between the levator ani muscles, including the urethra, the vagina, and the anal openings. The change in support of the urogenital hiatus is where prolapse occurs. Anterior support of the hiatus is pubic bones and levators. The posterior support is the perineal body and the external anal sphincter. The pubococcygeus muscle within the levator ani has the role of supporting from the pubic bone, and forming a sling around the pelvic organs and holding the pelvic floor closed. The external anal sphincter has a similar continuous contraction to close the anal region. Those continuous muscles create somewhat of a supportive shelf-like structure. The problem occurs when there's an injury to those pelvic muscles. We're gonna know an increase in reliance on pelvic fascia and ligamentous structures. So with a more open urogenital hiatus, those tissues are responsible for managing the high abdominal pressure and the low atmospheric pressure. So over time, you can imagine if the muscles continue to remain damaged or in vacation mode, these supportive tissues are also going to fail and result in prolapse. So if any of you listening have taken the Herman and Wallace courses, you might be familiar with the use that this article uses for the comparison of prolapse to a ship in a dry dock. The ship being the vagina, the ropes are the ligamentous structures, and the water is the supportive muscles of the pelvis. So you can visualize that as the water is removed, the effort of the ropes is going to increase and may lead to failure of the ropes. You can also see how ligamentous damage on one side or one of the ropes on the sides would affect the entire system as well. Let's go over the perineal membrane. It lives beneath the levator ani muscles and it's a dense triangular membrane. It's at the level of the hymen and it attaches the urethra, vagina, and perineal body to the ischiopubic rami. Remember that that compressor urethra and that urethrovaginal sphincter muscles are associated with the upper part of the perineal membrane. Also remember that the pressure during a cough or a sneeze is the highest at the distal urethra due to the anatomical mapping. The distal urethra is where these structures compress in anticipation. An interesting side note is that the term perineal membrane is meant to replace the term urogenital diaphragm, if that's a term that you're more familiar with using. Diaphragm was meant to depict that it's a layer with a double layer of fascia, but it's actually a set of connective tissues that surround the urethra. So after about 16 minutes, I think we can all agree that urinary continence is complicated. And this is largely due to the complexities of the neurophysiology and the lower urinary tract structural support. You can actually divide the lower urinary tract into the bladder and the urethra, which are joined at that vesicle neck. 
So let's start with the bladder first. It has two primary functions, storage and voiding. The detrusor has a storage phase and an emptying phase. For storage, we're gonna see that the muscles relax to accommodate urine without increased intravesical pressure. And then for emptying, we're gonna see a waterfall of events. One, urethral relaxation, two, release of the detrusor tonic inhibition, and three, a reflex voiding contraction. Sometimes the bladder is emptied with reaching maximal capacity and other times it's relative to just a voluntary void. We also know that the location of the bladder in relation to the vesicle neck is important as some of our women with anterior prolapse experience increased post-void residual volumes and post-void residual volume norms are gonna vary. I'll just go quickly over what I have been taught and what my providers use since we're talking a little bit about PVR. A PVR volume of less than 50 milliliters is considered adequate bladder emptying. In the elderly, that's between 50 and 100 milliliters to be considered normal. In general, a PVR volume greater than 200 milliliters is going to be considered abnormal. So that's where we're going to start looking at considerations for incomplete bladder emptying or bladder outlet obstruction. There are definite exact numbers for male versus female and more specific age groups if you want to get more specific and look that up. So now let's talk vesicle neck. The vesicle neck is both regional and functional, but it can't really be referred to a single anatomic entity. Its reference is to an area at the base of the bladder where the urethral lumen passes through the detrusor muscle of the bladder base that surrounds the trigone and the urethral meatus. So if you got a little lost trying to imagine that, I imagine it as a funnel. So at the very base of that funnel where it's gonna to start to open, that's where I imagine the vesicle neck is. So moving on to the urethra, that's the tubular organ below the bladder. So the top portion is not fused with the vagina, but the lower portion is. The striated urogenital sphincter muscle, also known as the external urethral sphincter, depending on how you've been taught, circles the mid portion of the urethra. Then after the pubic bone, kind of like a highway, the fibers diverge into different exits and to insert on the vaginal walls and the perineal membrane. So just a quick reminder for those who like repetition like I do, the perineal membrane's upper portion has the compressor urethra and the urethrovaginal sphincter muscles. Now those muscles have the role of increasing urethral pressure and contribute to a third of the resting urethral tone. So these are those slow twitch muscles and fatigue resistant, which allows them to be constantly active. Okay, three more structures to go over. We're in the home stretch, and then I'll repeat some of the take-home points from the article if you're feeling a little overwhelmed. The urethral smooth muscle has two layers, circular and longitudinal muscle fibers. So we know that the smooth muscles of both of those help to reduce the urethral closing pressure. We know that the circular muscle portion constricts the urethra, but the article kind of discusses that the jury is still out on the longitudinal muscle's exact role, even though the longitudinal muscle is the largest portion of that muscle. The second structure is the submucosal vasculature. That's a major piece of the urethra, especially considering how small it is. They believe that the hermetic seal maintains the urethral closure and the arterial flow also decreases urethral pressure. And finally, the glands. They're located on the distal and the middle portion of the urethra near the vagina, and there's a varying number of them. All right, so it's take home point time. So what are some things that we wanna take home from this article? Because it's kind of a lot of information. And I'm convinced that if you read this article five times, you'll probably learn something new every time you read it. 
So I always like to go over the levels of the Delancey support levels and the structures within them because it's really important regarding when there's a tear or a defect in any of those layers of support, what's going to fail, right? So with level one, those are going to be more of those ligamentous structures, those um, more proximal structures, We're thinking things like round ligament, broad ligament, uterosacral ligaments, um, fascia, transverse cervical ligaments. And the symptoms that you're going to have with a defect in the level one support structure are going to be things like uterine and vaginal vault prolapse, an enterocele, or a high bladder prolapse. Now for level two, we're looking more at the pubocervical fascia, the ATLA and the ATFP, the obturator internus fascia, um, and you're going to see symptoms more along the lines of a midline cystocele, high rectocele, or those paravaginal defects. Level three. Now we're looking at the most distal, right? So these are going to be the ones closest to those urethra and vaginal opening. So that's going to affect the pubourethral ligaments, the paravaginal fascia, and the perineal membrane. So you're going to see more symptoms along the lines of the urethral hypermobilities, those more open and lax introitus, and a low rectocele. All right, so next up for week one is our last article of week one um, that I can post because remember there's those Erian chapters, very important. Um, That's gonna be the vitamin D status and muscle function in postmenarchal adolescent girls. So I'll post that one next. And as always, thank you for joining me. 